to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And if you stand, I'll be reading verses 1 through 13, 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 13, as we again consider the Paul's really opening discussion of idolatry and how to use our Christian liberty and freedom in light of blessing and benefiting the body to the fullest extent. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Please be seated. I just spent six days in Washington, D.C. with about 120 teens and 60 leaders. That's why I'm wearing this particular T-shirt. So you might look around as you leave the sanctuary today for those that have one of these T-shirts on and ask them what they learned at camp. We spent the time learning about the book of Jude. Jeremy Hammer brought us five tremendous and powerful messages about how we live in light of understanding the true message of Christ in the midst of false teachers even within our own churches. So each day then, as we were in Washington, D.C., we broke up into groups, five teen, teens to a leader. We hopped on the metro, and we just toured the whole city. And during this time, we, of course, saw monuments of stone and metal commemorating famous men and the accomplishments and sacrifices of those that have come before us. Now, one lesson to be learned is that we are not to idolize the wealth, power, and influence that these men had and that our country in many ways represents. We must guard our hearts against viewing these people and events apart from the lens of Scripture. However, another lesson to be learned was that the monuments and memorials are a profound reminder that we do not live in a vacuum, occupying our own particular time and space, unconnected to all that has come before. In fact, we also toured the Holocaust Museum, which documents what can happen if a whole country turns to what is evil. So what is happening to us is always tightly connected to the actions of those who are both dead and living. Now, similarly, spending that much time together with so many people from the church was a reminder of how much of an impact we have on one another. This was brought home by Jeremy's messages, which spoke of the danger of false teachers in our midst and whose primary influence has not come only from their teaching, but from their ungodly character. We're always impacted by those around us, both by what they say and by how they live, and so we cannot view ourselves as living individually. And it is not only in our present time that we impact others, we impact others into the future. It's a good reminder of those things as we just carefully consider the work of God in light of even the work of nations and how we are to respond as a church. And certainly we as a church need to remember 
that we as a community of faith do not live for ourselves but for God and thus for others. Our lives are to be spent in careful contemplation and implementation of actions that will bless and strengthen the entire body of Christ, not simply bring benefit or comfort to ourselves. So what we'll see this morning is that true believers properly use their knowledge of God to exercise their Christian liberty for the glory of God and the spiritual growth of other believers. True believers properly use their knowledge of God to exercise their Christian liberty for the glory of God and the spiritual growth of other believers. Christian liberty is not about your rights, it is about your responsibilities. Now already in chapter 8, we looked at, Paul introduced us to the idea of idolatry, meat sacrificed to idols. And we really discussed the fact that eight chapters 8, 9, and 10 come together as a unit. Remember that in, your, in, in the original manuscripts, there, there aren't chapter divisions or verse divisions. All right, so this is one section of the letter in which Paul is dealing with a particular question, really statements they were making to him. And we have to read it in light of that all, all three of those chapters. And really, of course, in light of the book as a whole and the biblical story as it unfolds. So we explained a little bit about the nature of idolatry as we worked our way through those three chapters and, as an overview and we were, we were reminded that everything in Corinth was tied to an idol in some way, which is still true for us today. Everything we do is tied in one way or another to things that we worship, things that we'll sin to get, sin to keep, sin because we don't have, things that we find our pleasure in, that we give our lives to. So that hasn't changed, it's just the idols look a little different. Wandering around Washington, D.C., it's not the monuments people are bowing down to, it's the power and the money and the influence that those often represent. Well, in Corinth, again, there were idols everywhere, and that was a reflection of what people wanted. Right? Those worshiping of those idols was really a pursuing of their own desires, because that's what the idols gave. And really, remember, it wasn't the idols themselves, of course, it was the deities behind them. They understood that the idol itself you know, was not the god, it was the deity that was behind that. It was a representation of that god. And so they were trying to get what they wanted as they worshiped those deities, and then we talked about the fact that in, in light of the nature of that idolatry, that a true understanding of God causes us to realize that there aren't really any other deities. Right? So we talked about the fact that fleeing idolatry means the proper use of our knowledge. We as Christians know that there's one God and one Lord. We know that there aren't any other actual gods, and yet we can misuse that knowledge even to harm others. If you look in our text in verse 2, it says, if uh, really, verse, verse 1 says, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Even our knowledge of God, we have to use wisely in a way that demonstrates love towards others, a desire to build them up in Christ, to see them looking like Jesus. Right? That's what love is, relationally longing to be with them so that we can all be conformed to the image of Christ. And our love back towards God is that we would delight to give of our lives to look like Him. Right, to, again, be, be more and more taking on the character of the Lord Jesus, the perfect reflection of our Heavenly Father. So we have to use the knowledge about God wisely. We can't use it to harm others, as we'll see this morning, to stumble others, even the things we know that might somehow be done in such a way or said in such a way that would harm someone around us. And therefore, we must also make sure that we have the proper content of knowledge. Because he says, look, we all have knowledge in, in verse 1, but then he reviews that knowledge in verse 4. He says, we know, in the middle of verse 4, that there is no such thing as an idol. That's the knowledge that they had. And then we spent time last week unfolding his, his presentation of the one true God that does exist. Right? For us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist in Him. 
and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. I mean, this is the fundamental statement about the character and nature of God that we find in the New Testament. It puts everything together that you need to know about God so that you can avoid idolatry, so you aren't sucked into this idea that there are other gods, that there is another master. Because remember, he said, even though there are no other true deities, there are, he says, many gods and many lords, right? That's verse 5. People submit themselves in slavery to these things that they think are deities. And Paul says, no, there's no real deities. But remember, as we look in chapter 10, that's actually a, a submission to a demonic slavery. There are, there's demonic activity behind that worship. Not a true deity. Demons are created beings. But nonetheless, there is an enslavement that comes even though those aren't real deities. So we must know the true God and must not only know of Him but submit our lives to Him. He's the Lord the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Master, and we exist for Him and we exist through Him. God dominates everything about who we are, and therefore we cannot, must not, ever devote ourselves to idolatry, those things that are not God. That's why God demands that there is no idolatry, because there aren't any other real gods, and to seek to be enslaved to other things is an affront to the one holy God who does exist and to whom we owe our life and our breath and our very being. Idolatry is a strike at the very heart and nature of who God is, and we as humans do it apart from God naturally. It's what unbelievers always do. They worship idols. So this is not a minor issue. Yet also remember that Paul is talking to Christians. He's talking to a church, right? In the church, there were many believers. He addresses most of them as those who truly know Christ. And so even believers can wrestle and do wrestle with idolatry, with taking on the idols of the culture, going back into the culture and bringing that idolatry back, which was happening in Corinth, as well as misunderstanding what it is to actually worship and so misusing the knowledge of God and not properly informing our consciences about what worship actually is. So now Paul turns in verse 7 after kind of laying out the, really the fundamentals of idolatry, right? Here's the true God that we know. There are no other real deities, and therefore, we have to use that knowledge to love others and to love God well so that we don't endanger our very spiritual welfare. And now he's going to turn to the specifics of what's going on in Corinth, verse 7. So drop your eyes there. Really, only two points for this morning. We need to be mindful of those who lack knowledge, and then we need to be careful not to stumble our brothers, right? Verse 7, he says, however, and that's really in light of verse 6, where he says, there is one God and one Lord. We understand this. I taught you this, he says. You know this from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Behold, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. This has always been taught. It's the one God of the Bible. Yet, he says, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. We need to remember that even though everyone has heard, and so, example, we'll take this church or take the church in Corinth, they had all heard the proper knowledge. Not everyone was living rightly according to that knowledge. And in any given church, that is always the case. It isn't enough just to get knowledge out there because he's not now backing up and saying, well, we know this, but unbelievers don't know it. No, verse 7 is still about believers, right? Because they are eating as though it were sacrificed. They are thinking about what they used to do. It's not now talking about, well, unbelievers don't know this, so they're stumbled. You can't stumble unbelievers, right? You can't harm the spiritual condition of unbelievers because they have no spiritual condition. So he's talking about Christians here, Christians in Corinth, who although they have the truth about who God is, 
when they go to eat food, and particularly the food that was sacrificed to an idol, they still think they're worshiping an idol. Or I'll put it this way, they know they're not, but their affections and their will are not yet properly oriented, so their conscience goes off to say, no, you're worshiping another god, even though intellectually they know that there are no other gods. This is, this is who we are. We are complex on the inside. He calls this condition a weak conscience. That's number one. Their conscience is weak. He says, but some being accustomed to the idol until now. That means they're accustomed to worshiping idols which at the time represented true gods. When they were pagans, they thought those were real deities. So they thought they were actually worshiping a god. Now that they're Christians, now that they've come to know the true god, they still wrestle with the thought of when they eat that meat or when they're in that situation that they are actually going back to that worship of a true deity, even though right, in their minds they know that that is not true. Their conscience hasn't yet caught up with the reality of what they know. The conscience, really remember, is it's the inner man faculty. It's a human faculty, all right? And it, our mind, our will, our affections, and our conscience are part of our inner man that reside, as it were, in, inside of us, in our heart, the Bible says. And the conscience is the faculty that God has designed to weigh in on the rightness or wrongness of anything that we think, do, say, love, or are motivated by. Everything that goes on in your inner man, mind, will, and affections, is that the conscience makes judgments about it. Is that right or is that wrong? And then it interacts with your inner man to condemn you or to commend you. Everything you do, the conscience is aware of. We are complex. You're sitting here this morning thinking about things that you have thought. You're thinking about what I'm saying and trying to decide if you're responding properly or if what I'm saying is proper. Your conscience, working with your intellect and your will and your affections, is, is weighing in on everything. And you're wondering even now, well, did, maybe there's something I did last week that wasn't right. I just said something about idolatry and making sure that we all live together right in my intro and you were already your conscience might have been bearing witness against you about something. That's how complex this is. It's amazing that we ever get out from inside our own heads to even listen for a while because all of these things are going on. Whether you're fully aware of it or not, it's not subconscious, like it's not you couldn't access it. You're going to always know it's there. It's just we're not always paying attention to that inter, inner dialogue. Paul says, look, you're, these, these believers in Corinth have a weak conscience because they think they feel like they're affected by this worship as though, or this eating of the meat, as though they were actually worshiping a deity, even though now they have the information that they aren't. In a church, we must not simply assume that because everybody has heard the same thing, that they are responding properly to it, not us or anyone else. And so we carefully work our way through how to apply these things. Does our life reflect the reality of what we're actually, of what we actually know? And in our minds, are we in, is our mind, will, affections, and conscience all in conjunction, all built carefully and properly around the truths of Scripture? And so we help each other with these things. Again, we spent six week, weeks at camp, or six days, not six weeks. It felt like six weeks. We're back. Some of us need to get back to like, it's a whole group thing back to like 1.30 last night. Uh, but nonetheless, all those days at camp, you see a whole series of actions that people go through, and you realize that, oh, a lot of these kids have heard all the same information, and a lot of these leaders have heard the same information, but everybody's not responding the same way. So be so careful that you don't just assume things about your own behavior or others. He says you need to be aware of, all right? Not all men have the knowledge. Not Everyone is acting according to the information, the truth that they have, and not all men are even using that knowledge wisely. What we want to do as a church 
is we want to learn how to properly orient all of us, mind, will, affections, and conscience for every individual in this room around the truths of Scripture so that we are living them out properly, all knowledge properly used. But we are not there, nor will we ever be there until we see our Lord. I would say this. We will never be there fully because there's an infinite amount of growth that we, could, that we can have because we're going to live for eternity. And our character will, being, be, will be being built even when sin is burned away. We'll be growing and deepening in our understanding of God and aligning properly our character with God's. So he says here, their conscience is weak because they're accustomed to worshiping idols which at one time represented true gods for them and then when they eat the food they can't help thinking Right? That they're worshiping true gods. And maybe I should say they can't help being impacted right, by this idolatry because they're thinking they know that's not a real God. But their conscience is still bearing witness against them because their inner man is not rightly aligned. They're in turmoil about this thing. You know what that's like. You're doing something and you know one thing and you're, you're, you're affections and everything's not, it's not aligned properly and you're trying to figure out what's going on. Your conscience is going off and you don't really know why. That's what's going on. Yeah, they're eating the food. They couldn't help thinking they were worshiping a true God. By the way, this is this has simply to do, as we'll see in this section, right, with not only what they eat, right, but how and where they eat. Right? It seems that the believers in Corinth were actually going back to the temples to eat the idol sacrifices. And what we're going to find is that Paul will condemn the going back to the temples. We'll find that in chapter 10. Even though he does not condemn the eating of the food itself, as we'll see here, he actually will condemn the going back into the culture to eat the meat there. So there's a double problem here. Not only what they are eating, but where they are eating it. And we need all three chapters to get at this. So you're just going to have to keep coming back if you're new this morning. Because we're only going to get this introduced. Paul's only starting at one part of it, which is just the food itself, essentially. And he's going to work his way to where they're eating. And we're going to find that both groups, both those who are eating in the idol temple, thinking it's fine, and those who go knowing it isn't fine, but then having their conscience wrongly strengthened to go, they both have a problem. So this gets a little complex. We'll try to work our way through it. Right? Now, so then what happens is the thought that, ah, I'm actually worshiping a God, even though I know there aren't true gods, it causes their conscience to testify about them or against them as though they are breaking the first commandment or breaking the commandment of no other gods. They're not loving the Lord their God with other heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they're having other gods. Imagine the turmoil that causes in their mind. They know the commandment. Mentally, they know that there are no other gods, yet they go and they sit there, they eat the food, and they're like, ah, I think I'm worshiping. So they, it says their conscience being weak is actually defiled. That is, they are uncertain about the true biblical obedience that they're involved in, and so that confusion causes them to actually be sinning. That's what Romans 14 says. If you're not doing it out of faith, I know this to be true, you're actually sinning. So it says their conscience is defiled. It's going off wrongly. Then it's causing them to do things, and those things they do are actually sin because of how their conscience is testifying about it, even though the thing itself isn't. That's how powerful the conscience is and how strongly God demands and commands of us to have the conscience and the mind, will, and affections all connected together, where they're not testifying against us wrongly. Now, this idea of trying to recalibrate the conscience, it's hard to get a good illustration here, but one time I got in super late from an activity that I'd done, and normally I get up pretty early, so I had my alarm set for five, and I realized, man, I do not want to get up at five. I'm not doing that. So I set, the, I set an alarm on my iPhone for eight, right? So the alarm went off, and I got up, and I was ready to go, and I got out of bed, and I stumbled out in the kitchen, and it's five, I'm like, this is evil. 
All right, so I go back and I'm like, what is the problem? Well, of course, I'd forgotten to uncheck the little button on the, on the iPhone timer. So the 5 o'clock and the 8 o'clock were checked, and the 5 o'clock came first. It's a little bit like your conscience. If you're going to get it right, you've got to uncheck the other boxes. If you're trying to move towards 8 o'clock, you're going to have to uncheck 5 o'clock. If you want to worship God properly, you're going to have to uncheck the other conscience alarms that are going off, and that takes some time to work your way through that calibration process. So we actually are defiled. We get contaminated. We're actually sinning when we don't correspond our thinking and our actions with what our conscience tells us to do. And this is a longer process. We don't have time this morning to work our way through that. And as we work through 1 Corinthians, we'll talk more about how we calibrate our consciences so we don't violate, we don't actually sin. We're not actually defiled by the things that we do. That's a strong word. It's actual sin going on because the conscience is not properly calibrated, even though the action itself of the eating of the food wasn't sin. It's a powerful thought. Because again, living out our Christian life is not just kind of a broad base, well, I hope I get it right. There's a, there's a, a deep, strong, and, and, and really intricate connection between what we think and what we do, and all of that is supposed to be right. That's why you have the great power of God. That's why you have these principles. It's not just some broad base, well, I hope you get some stuff right, we're Christians, we kind of have this, you know, we plaster on this, this idea of morality and then move forward. I just, again, spent six days at camp, obviously it's a lot on my mind. But as I was driving home, and even this morning as I woke up, I, I'm, I'm interacting with 180 people, right, consistently, all, you know, in the tent right next to me and driving, and we're dealing with problems and working through things, and I'm thinking through, all right, was there anything that I did there, any word that I said, any, any tone of voice that I used that was inappropriate? Right? Was there any hard attitude that I had towards someone as I was in that that maybe I need to apologize to them for or maybe I need to ask the Lord's forgiveness for? It's not that I shouldn't be doing that all the time. That's every day. It just made it a little bit more intense. Hundreds of interactions throughout the week. Every single one of them was supposed to be pleasing to the Lord. And if my conscience testifies anywhere against me that I was wrong in those things, I have to deal with that. That's every day for all of us all the time. God holds us accountable for every word and every action and every motive and every thought. Now, aren't you delighted that the righteousness of Christ covers you so that you don't have to get all of that right before he accepts you? But that doesn't mean that you aren't supposed to get it right. Why? Because as we will see, if you don't, others are harmed. And when others are harmed, God is dishonored. That's why this matters. It's not, I'm covered with the righteousness of Christ. I'm not perfect, just forgiven. Whoa, well, wait a minute. Are you just excusing all your sin then? I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. So if I sinned against you, hey, I'm forgiven. They're like, thanks, that helps me, right? Christians do that. We'll, we'll see this. I'm forgiven. Does that mean that when I sin against you, it's all cool? It doesn't. If I, if I harm your conscience, if I do something which leads you astray, well, I'm forgiven. And you just left a just devastation in your wake. Well, that's what the Corinthians were doing, using what they called Christian liberty, which we'll get to in a minute, to harm others, in their use of their so-called freedom and their knowledge of God. So, number one there on your outline was, it was be mindful of those who lack knowledge, their conscience is weak. And number two is they misunderstand the relationship of food to worship. Here's the fundamental issue, verse eight. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Here's the primary principle. The actual ingesting of food, and here we know the context here is meat sacrificed to idols, right? So specifically, food that was used in a pagan sacrifice. But here he's broadening it out a little bit. Any food, anywhere, 
at any time. Now, hear me carefully. Just the ingestion of the food is this principle. We're going to talk more about where you eat the food and why you eat the food. Those things always matter. The actual eating of it, however, has nothing to do with your relationship with God. Just putting that McDonald's burger in your mouth, although it might not be very good for you, God is not, that is not, that's not changing your worship, right? Again, we know that to eat and drink should be done to the glory of God. But again, he's just speaking very physically, very tactilely here. The food itself, the, 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 the molecules that make it up, and your action of taking it from the plate into your mouth have nothing to do with your worship. Now remember, the Jews thought that it did. In fact, most everybody does. The actual way you do that ceremony impacts your worship of God. Paul says it doesn't. You need to know that those physical actions do not commend you to God. Now, it's very interesting how he says this. We would expect, I think, in verse 9 to see, or verse 8, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do eat, nor the better if we do not eat. Right? Because normally we think, well, there's certain things I shouldn't eat and that will please God. No, the Corinthians were flipping around the other way. If you don't eat meat in the idol temple, then God is displeased with you. If you don't eat the meat sacrificed to idols, you are not properly exercising your liberty and you're dishonoring God who gave you that liberty. That's where they were at. That's why it says it that way. They were saying, look, if you don't eat this food, God is angry at you. And Paul's saying, you got that, there's nothing, you're not eating at the idol temple. You're not eating meat sacrificed to idols has nothing to do with your being commended to God. You don't have to eat that meat and, so, and, and exercise your so-called freedom for God to, to be pleased with you, for you to be honoring God. Similarly, he says, look, you Corinthians who have this so-called freedom are saying, look, because we're eating this food, we're more spiritual and God is more pleased with us than you. He says, no, doesn't commend you to God. Eating that meat sacrificed to idols, not eating the meat sacrificed to idols has nothing to do with God's commendation of you, his favor towards you. This is really important. It is the, these physical things, that diet that you went on, again, that, that, that actual food you're eating, I'm sorry, it might be good or worse for you, you know, your Daniel diet and all the stuff that you do, that has nothing to do with your worship, just the actual ingestion. Again, I'm not saying the motives behind it or even where you might do that doesn't matter. We'll see that in a minute. But please do not think somehow by changing your diet or doing something different, that that is worship in that sense. That that commends you to God. I'm sorry, guys, it doesn't. Paul makes that very clear. Eat what you want, enjoy that, you know, all those things, but it has nothing to do with your worship, the actual eating of it. All right, not more pleasing to God if we do not eat certain foods, right? Not more pleasing to God if we do eat certain foods. Food does not commend us to God. So that's the fundamental principle. Right? Now, it's going to get a little more complex as we move to the next verse. Because in this next verse, we have not only the eating of the food, but also the place where it is eaten. Paul's going to be dealing with the eating of the food and the nature of how it impacts the people in Corinth. He's also going to begin the conversation about should you be eating at an idol's temple, but he's not going to finish out that discussion until chapter 10. So we're just going to have to work our way carefully through this. Right? In this issue then, now he moves to his, his real point in this part, Don't stumble your brother. Make sure that your actions, your knowledge of God and how you live out that knowledge in your freedom, make sure that that doesn't stumble, harm, cause to come to a kind of spiritual ruin, someone for whom Christ died. This is serious stuff. How you live for Christ, what you think you can do in your freedom, your knowledge of God, must always be bounded by how that will impact someone else. You never do 
anything that doesn't impact someone else, and you may never do anything without thinking about how it will impact someone else, ever. I'm free to do this. Are you free to do it in light of the person sitting next to you? Are you actually free to do it, or are you just misunderstanding the nature of your freedom? We can err in both ways. Paul will deal with both over these three chapters. Let's begin now with the principle, though, of liberty. All right? Be careful not to stumble a brother. Number one, the principle of liberty. What does it mean to have liberty in Christ, to have spiritual freedom? It does not mean what most people have thought that it means meant down throughout the ages. Look, hey, I'm just free to do whatever I want. You can't judge me. That's generally how that's viewed. I'm free in Christ. And that's exactly what the Corinthians were saying. We're free. We have the Spirit. You can't tell us what to do. God has given us this freedom. If we don't exercise this freedom, we're actually dishonoring Him. So we're going to do what we want and call it the Spirit of God. Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever tried that before? I'm going to do this, a Spirit of God. Well, that you don't have that kind of freedom. It's going to take us some time, but we're going to get through it. All right. Verse 9, but take care. Strong contrast. Here's the, here's the main principle. Right? Just eating of the food doesn't commend you to God. That in and of itself doesn't change his view of you. But verse 9, take care that this liberty of yours, the liberty to eat the food, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Need to, need to define a couple of things here. First, the practice of liberty requires great care. If you think I'm overdoing this, he says, but take care. Be very careful. That's the idea. Watch out so that you don't do this wrongly. Everything in the Christian life is like that. Watch out. Don't enter into anything without thinking about it, without having biblical principles which guide it. Watch out because there are people around you that have to be built up and as a, an example for Christ, it has to be lived. Take great care that this liberty of yours. What is this? The word itself means power, ability, freedom to act or to choose a certain course. Oh, we Americans, we love freedom. We love, and we should. We're just in Washington, D.C. I'm really happy to be free to stand here this morning and worship without people breaking down the door and coming for me. I'm really pleased at that. And there are people, believers and unbelievers, who died so that we could do that. I don't want to forget that. Freedom is very important. But we as Americans love to exercise our freedom however we want. And when we do, what happens? It's not really freedom. And that's what Paul is going to say. This freedom of conscience that you are exercising is actually harming someone else. So you don't have that freedom, by the way. Freedom is about giving up your own rights so that others will be blessed and benefited. So the practice of liberty requires great care. The practice of liberty must not stumble the weak. So if I could define liberty here, it would be the perceived right to act in a way which one believes to be biblically correct and may be biblically correct, and yet others believe it to be biblically wrong. So look, I, I, I have the right to live this out because I think this is what the Bible says. And in many cases, you're right. In Romans 14, it's interesting. It seems that all the issues discussed there when it talks about freedom are all things that were in and of themselves, acceptable to do. You could do all of them. Eat food, not eat food, you know, uh, do, the, do the feast days or whatever. Here in Corinth, it's a little different. Again, we're going to see that there was freedom to eat the meat itself, but there wasn't freedom to eat it at the temples. That's going to be the difference here. There was actually something wrong that they were saying their freedom let them do that it didn't. It's not exactly the same as Romans 14. Everything there was, you can actually do that and please the Lord. Here, some of their knowledge was being exercised wrongly and they were so stumbling their brother as we'll see in two different ways because they were wrong about one principle, where you can eat, even though they were right about the principle, what you can eat. 
Are you confused yet? Stay with me. We'll get there. All right? So the practice of liberty, the big principle here, don't become a stumbling block in your exercise of your perceived right. That is, God has given me the ability to live out these truths, and it doesn't violate Scripture. Even though you might think that that is wrong, right? you could do that and stumble someone. This is a very strong word. It comes from out of the Old Testament, really, Leviticus 19.14, with an actual stumbling block. It says, you shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. There's no metaphor there. You've got a blind man walking down the street. You're not allowed to take a brick and stick it in front of him so he trips and falls. Imagine the evil of that. And yet we see those kinds of evils all the time, do we not? Maybe a better picture here would be, this is a really strong word, Maybe a better idea would be rolling a boulder down upon an unsuspecting blind man. He can't see. He doesn't know what's coming, and the boulder rolls across the top of him and flattens him. Again, this word is powerful because oftentimes it does. It's talking about actually destroying someone, leading them into destruction. Here we're going to see, I think it's spiritual. It can be spiritual ruin. That is, their whole life, is their spiritual life is in tatters, but not to the point where somehow they were, are cast away by God because for true believers, that's impossible. But we will understand and we will see as we work forward that your spiritual life can be in such a tatters that God will bring you home. It says some sleep in 1 Corinthians 11 and sleep is death. God has taken some of them home because they were misappropriating the uh, communion supper, which by the way is related directly to eating in idol temples as we will see. Serious stuff here. So it begins in the Old Testament, this idea of an actual physical way that you would harm someone when they can't see it. You stuck it in their way, they tripped over it, or they were harmed by it. Well, it's metaphorically then used in Ezekiel 14.3. The son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. They've put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Shall I be consulted by them at all? Idols do what? They cause people to stumble. They're tripping. In fact, it's just boulders being rained down upon people's heads, crushing them and harming them. That's what you're doing to yourself when you worship idols. And God says, look, they've got that stumbling block right up in front of their faces, those idols, and now they're asking me for my help. Should I help them at all? Right, so a stumbling block is a big deal. He says, don't become a stumbling block to the weak. Don't cause spiritual harm to those who aren't able to understand yet how to use this knowledge. Be so careful about what you're doing that you don't bring harm to them. The stumbling block then, right, is that a person who is weak, doesn't have the knowledge necessary to understand the reality or has not properly used the knowledge they have to understand the reality of idol worship so they believe that if they eat meat sacrificed to idols, they're committing idolatry. That's the stumbling block you're placing. You eat the meat, they think they can eat the meat, you're stumbling them because they're not ready for that. Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything is unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. That's a strong word. He uses it here in 1 Corinthians as well. Don't destroy. Right? Don't, don't, don't cause the, the personal spiritual life of someone to implode where they get confused and they're harmed and they're dishonoring God and they wander off into sin because that's what happens when your conscience is miscalibrated. You can wander off into the sin of legalism where everything is a rule, everything you do this, do that, or you can wander off into the sin of what we might call libertinism, antinomianism, where nothing is wrong. Both of those are huge problems in churches. So we look now at the practice of liberty. We'll just get this started. 
the practice of liberty. So the principle is where those two things I mentioned, the practice of liberty requires great care. The practice of liberty must not stumble the weak. Whatever you do, whatever kind of freedom in Christ you actually have or even think you have, if it was going to harm someone else, you would immediately set it aside so that you wouldn't roll a builder down on their head. Now the practice, how does this actually work? Because now he's going to go to the specific application, what they're actually doing that's causing this problem. All right, so here's what's going on, verse 9, or verse 10. For if, so the four is, all right, here's the example, how you're causing that stumbling block. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, really key here, the brother for whose sake Christ died. We're talking about other Christians. You're going to harm another Christian. Jesus died so they wouldn't be spiritually harmed, and now you're undoing that work, as it were, by harming them spiritually. Again, not under spiritual death, not under removing their salvation, Right? But Jesus died so they would have flourished in Christ and have a deep and intimate relationship with Him. His death was laid down for them so that they might be able to walk with God, and you're harming it. How can you do that? These are your brothers. These are those who are in your family. They were adopted into your family. How can you be harming them in this way? So, knowledge must be exercised carefully. If someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, what does he mean? Well, these are people who say, look, there are no other deities, and so I can go dine in this idol temple, I can eat the food, and I'm not actually worshiping a, a god because there are no other gods, right? So their conscience was clear. Now, again, here's where this gets tricky. Are they right in the fact that actual eating of the food is not dishonoring to God? They were. Paul doesn't deal with it here, right? Uh, he deals with that principle here, right? Food does not commend you to God. Are they right in that you can sit in an idol's temple and do that? The answer is no. But that doesn't come in until chapter 10. So we got, this is a difficult portion here. He's only talking about the actual eating, but, but, but for the weak person, they're going to be placed back into a situation where they have a double bind on their conscience, as we'll see. They're actually going to be in a situation they shouldn't be in, and they're going to be eating meat that they think they shouldn't be eating. Two problems that these so-called knowledgeable people have. So again, they got part of it right, and this is what's so dangerous. They could sit there, and the actual ingestion of the food was not a sin. But being there was. Right? So that's the issue here. There's two issues. Paul's only dealing with one of them first, which is the actual eating of the food. So he says, exercise your knowledge carefully. Because what happens, you're sitting there at the party, I would remember, they were parties. That's largely what was going on. You're eating the food, and your brother, you know, from the church, walks by on his way, you know, business to his business trip. He sees you in ingesting the meat. He's got two problems. He sees you there eating the meat, and he's stumbled because he's like, whoa, I'd like to eat that meat too. And he's eating that meat, so I'm going to go eat that meat. But also, he's going to be stumbled in the place you are. He's going to go sit back, and that appears to be what's happening, that the weak were not only just eating the meat, they were actually going back to the places to eat the meat, and so they were being doubly harmed by this one who's just kicking back, eating the meat, saying, I got, I got the right to do this. He's half right. But in this sense, makes him all wrong because he is stumbling this other brother. He says, you, you've got knowledge, you're dining in the idol's temple. It says, will not his conscience, if he is weak, again, one of those who hasn't yet worked all of this out, he's got the truth in his head, but he can't yet eat the eat idol meat because he's not worked it all in his, his affections and his conscience. Now, this is really interesting. Stay with me here. These words matter. 
Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Now, usually we think of strengthened as what? Positive. As something good. His conscience is strengthened. He can now go eat that meat. But in this case, it's bad. The word there is actually edified, built up. This is fascinating. So he sees you there, and he goes, well, that person's doing it, so it must be okay. Right? He convinces his conscience that it's okay, and he goes and sits there. But there are two problems. He's still not ready internally. He still has this feeling, this affection, that he's worshiping another god. And now, all of a sudden, he's sitting where there is actually that demonic worship going on. Wow, you've, you've just done two harms here. Right? You have strengthened their conscience to actually go do that thing that is too soon for them to be doing and is also the wrong place for them to be. It's a serious issue. Now, we need to understand that when it says here, you have harmed their conscience, right? Uh, you've strengthened, it actually says you've strengthened it, which sounds good, but it isn't. You've built their conscience up to do something they shouldn't be doing. Verse 11, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And then verse 12, so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Please hear me. This is so often misunderstood. Wounding someone's conscience or, or defiling their conscience has nothing to do with their emotional response to your action. Right? You're sitting there eating the idle meat. The brother walks by and feels, oh, I'm so mad that you're doing that. You have wounded my conscience. Not at all. It has nothing to do with your emotional response. That makes me mad you did that. You can't do that because it makes me mad. It's got nothing to do with it. The issue is actually just the opposite. If they walk by and they go, ooh, I want to do that, then you've harmed their conscience. Then you've wounded their conscience. So please don't throw out this kind of self-righteous thing. That guy does that. I don't like that he does that. He's wounded my conscience. He needs to stop. (laughs) He doesn't have to stop anything. If you get drawn into sin because of what he's doing, you like what he's doing, and you start doing it when you shouldn't, then you need to stop. So we, we don't have self-righteous people that rule the congregation by coming in and saying, well, I don't like that, and I don't like that, and that makes me mad, and you're doing that, and you're singing that. Or you, that that's me, I'm, I'm angry at that. You're, you're harming my conscience. No, we're not. If we're drawing you into something that's sinful, we might be, but we're not. All right? This gets complex, but you need to understand it's not your emotional response to what's happening. It's are you actually change, making changes in your actions that are harmful to you, right? And we would have to be sensitive to those things as we walk our way through that as a church and as individuals. But don't misunderstand this. Too often this is misunderstood. And people use it as a, as a crowbar against other people to stop doing things when it has nothing to do with an emotional anger response to this. So the first thing there is knowledge must be carefully exercised because you might strengthen their conscience to do something that they're not ready to do and then the improper spiritual, or the improper exercise of knowledge can bring the spiritual ruin of a brother. Says, look, don't do that then. Because if you strengthen their conscience to go do that, you edify, you build up their conscience, and they go sit in that idol sacrifice, they have two problems. One, again, as I said, it's too early for them to be doing that. They still are ah, worshiping another god. Now, the person sitting next to them, the Christian, doesn't think they're worshiping another god. That's not the problem for this guy. Right? He's, he, does, he knows he's not. But actually, as we'll see in chapter 10, he's communing with demons. This guy here has really two problems. One is that he thinks he's actually worshiping another god. His conscience got strengthened, but it was too early. And here's the problem. His conscience isn't going off about the fact that he is actually doing demonic worship. Yikes. So they both have that problem. And so they're causing spiritual ruin in the place that they're eating. And for the weak brother, he has spiritual ruin from what he is eating. 
See what I mean? The, the one guy, the, the strong brother, only has the spiritual ruin because of where. The other man is wrestling, has, is, is doubly condemned because of what he's eating and where he's eating it. So a double problem. Again, in, in case if you, you're not looking ahead to chapter 10, remember what Paul said in verse 18. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the, de- which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. So where they are is a problem. Paul's only dealing in chapter 8 with the fact that they wouldn't give up their liberty to eat their meat, and so they were causing the other brother who was weak to stumble in really two ways. And they're bringing ruin upon him as a result of that. And then he, he just ends with this. We'll end with this for this morning. The brother for whose sake Christ died. They must be built up in the proper way. You may not harm their conscience. You need to get out of that idol meat sacrifice for two reasons for them, because they're not yet ready to eat the meat, and you don't want to expose them to that idolatry. Give up what you think is your freedom, halfway right, halfway wrong. Get rid of it. Paul goes on. We'll discuss this next week. He says, look, I'll give up anything. My freedom, anything that is actual freedom, I'll give it up. Is that where you're at this morning? Instead of thinking about what can I do and how can I do this and why do I get to exercise and my life should be, I should be able to do this, are you thinking, what would I give up? So that every other person in this church would be able to walk with Jesus in the strongest way possible. And I hear all these cultural conversations. I mean, the culture is sucking us back into these things. You know, you got these nasty shows on TV and all of a sudden people are like, well, I think I can watch that. I mean, I'm a Christian, I can watch those sex scenes. That, that's no big deal. That's all okay. Is it really? Right? It, really? We're going to be drawn back to those things, not only maybe stumbling others by our very viewing, but the fact that we're viewing wrongly, and that's a, probably a good illustration of both of those things, because we have to be careful not to get sucked by our culture back into idolatry or driven by our freedom into doing things that would cause others to stumble, because they are our brothers for whom Christ died. Everything you do is considered in light of those who are in this church, specifically. These are your direct brothers and sisters, every Christian. So that's the challenge. Is there anything in your life in which you're exercising what you think is your Christian freedom, sitting in the idol temple, and actually that's a misappropriation? You, you got your knowledge wrong. Or where you are actually correct, you can actually do that, and yet it's causing someone else to stumble. They're looking at that and saying, oh, I want to do that too, and it's not time for them. Either way, you got to let it go, and you need to be willing to lay your life down. Man, we're so independent. So you can't tell me what to do, or so I'm an American, or I'm an American Christian, and, and I do this with my family, and we do these things. Well, maybe you should, and maybe you shouldn't. Everything is on the table when it comes to being a blessing and benefit to others. Everything, obviously, scriptural principles. Your actions, where you go, it's all on the table. To say, look, I'll, I'll give that up. Paul says, I'll give up anything. Are we there as a church? Because these are those for whom Christ died. He already laid his life down. Will you lay yours down? for the purity, for the spiritual health of those for whom Christ already died. That's what Christians do. Regardless of the sacrifice that it takes, unto your very life, because Jesus died for those that we are living with. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together, and thank you for the privilege that we have to minister to one another. Lord, help us in this area of using freedom. Lord, help us not to be wrong, to somehow think we have a freedom that we do not. 
and help us even when we truly have the freedom to lay it aside if necessary so that no one in our congregation would be harmed, so that no one would be led astray, no one would be strengthened to do things that it's not time for them to do. And Lord, I pray that we would seek after your holiness, that we might represent you well to a culture that could care less if they crush and harm and hurt others, that is barreling after their own pleasure in every way, longing for their dreams and their desires to be fulfilled and crushing everyone else around. Lord, help us never to be like that and as a church to represent the truth of the one who laid his life down for us. In your precious name.